Good morning. I said last week that I had another lesson, at least a lesson, maybe a lesson and a half on how to kill sin, practically, which, uh, which I still do. I just, I thought I, I wanted to have a, a brief intermission. Two weeks in a row was on that one idea, and I wanted to put something, at least for this week, maybe next week before we do uh, the third and final in that regard. But I want to I want to reiterate the idea at the beginning of each of these lessons that a Christian's theology is only as good as his practice of it. The ideas that we hold to be true have no value if they do not affect the way that we live. And you think about all the the things we're called to by way of command, by way of instruction, by way of principle— in the Bible. Would God call us to those things if it wasn't practically possible to do them? I don't think so. But sometimes there's a hang-up between the command and how to carry out the command. And that's really the purpose of this series, is to get as practical as possible. (coughs) This morning, talking about worry, anxiety. This is one of the most anxious periods in our history. Just sheer numbers of those that struggle and wrestle with anxiety tells me this is a subject that needs to be addressed, and we can put some practical things to it. And I want to say at the outset of this lesson that if the world has an ill, Jesus can solve it. Jesus can heal it. If the world has an ill... It doesn't matter the magnitude of the ill. It does not matter how big it is. It does not matter how many people that it affects. If the world has a problem, Jesus can solve it. We're not dealing with a small Savior. We're not dealing with a Savior who sets out on on a mission and doesn't accomplish it. We're dealing with a Savior who single-handedly triumphed over the hosts of darkness. We're dealing with a Savior who all through the Gospels, when he went to those who were inhabited by demons, he could say to them, and he could say to the demons, be gone, and the demons had to obey his voice, and they obeyed his voice every single time. We're dealing with a Savior who is seated on the throne right now, this morning, as the king over all of the universe, not the least being the king over your heart and my heart and your mind and my mind. And Jesus says this, Behold, I am making all things new. The work of Jesus is redemptive, not only in that he brings us back into the presence of the Father, but he fixes the problems that came with sin. He dealt with the guilt and the consequence of sin, and he is dealing every day practically with the effects of sin on the ground. He's not a small savior. He's a big savior. He does not leave his people, his disciples, those who are bought by his blood, he does not leave us hopeless. He does not leave us despaired. He does not leave us in gloom. 
He does not leave us with pits constantly in our stomachs as we look to the future uncertain of it. Paul said to the Ephesians that he was praying for the Ephesians that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they would know the hope to which they have been called. So that they would know the immeasurable greatness of the power of God toward those who believe. And by virtue of him praying for it, it tells me that they weren't aware of these things. And it's possible, I think, to live the Christian life not fully being aware of the hope to which we've been called. The great things that lie ahead of us. There are great things ahead of us. And it should put a smile into our faces. In Isaiah chapter 9, one of my favorite descriptions of Jesus in all the Bible is from Isaiah chapter 9. It says that his name would be Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. This is his name. This is who he would be. His essence is counsel. Good counsel. Counsel to the anxious. Counsel to the depressed. Counsel to those who have lost their way. He would fill the role of a father. How many in the world struggle with father hunger? Longing for that role, longing for that space to be filled in their hearts. Perhaps it wasn't filled by a person. Jesus fills it. His name would be Mighty God. He's mighty. He is strong. The issues we face, the problems before us, he can fix them. He can break down those walls. He can defeat those enemies. He is mighty, and his name would be Prince of Peace. Meaning that those who are under the reign of Jesus would be the people of peace. We would experience peace. We would experience the peace of sleep, the peace of rest, the peace of knowing that our future is secure. Jesus is mighty. And in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25, he said, do not, this is an imperative, this is a command of our Lord. He says, do not be anxious about your life. By way of command, he says, do not be anxious about your life, whatever it is. But this is a series on practical Christianity. How do you do it? It's one, I, I, know I'm, I'm, I know that I'm supposed to trust more. I know I'm supposed to fix my hope on the things ahead. How do I do it? What does that look like on the daily? And that's really what this lesson is about. We're going to start with this scripture. This is a scripture that I know is familiar to all of us. But Philippians chapter 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Writing from a prison cell. Writing under the hand of a heavy persecution. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts. It will guard those deepest parts of you, and it will guard your mind in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, there's a protection afforded your mind and a protection afforded your heart. 
and it comes out by way of a life that is free from worry, a life that is fixed on Jesus. And this, if you look at this passage, look there in verse 6. This is the central command. Do not be anxious about anything. Anything. And I, I, I love this because, I mean, there, there have been some things where I thought, well, this is a pretty good reason to worry. And I'm pretty good at going over in my mind and saying, yeah, but what about this? He says, don't be anxious about anything. There, there is not a thing. This central command, the idea here is that God does not permit us to be worrisome people. He does not permit us to be a people who look to the future with a bleak outlook. He, and, and the positive way of saying it is, God wants for us to be free from worry. It's, an, it, it's a Greek imperative. It's a command of the living God, which tells me God wants us to be free from worry, which tells me, just think, of, this is our Father. This is our eternal Father who made us from the dust of the ground. What father wouldn't want this for their children? This is a loving father who's saying, I don't want you to worry about anything. Don't worry about anything. The idea there is, well, there's some pretty, there's some pretty big stuff above me that's keeping it all in order. For one, I have to learn in, to trust in that. But it tells me that I have a God that wants me to be at ease. Your God wants for you to sleep well. Your God wants for you to look into the face of the unknown. Whatever it is, whatever it is, and he wants you to look into the face of it and to be confident and to be at peace and to be able to sleep at night and to be happy and to be filled with joy, rejoice always. This is the will of God for you. He wants you to rest assured of his goodness. Now, this morning I'm going to break down three, I won't spend a great deal of time on any one of these, but I'm going to break down three particular kinds of anxiety that exist. And this categorizes a lot. This is, I mean, out, the last one especially is going to categorize maybe everything that was left out of the first two. But I think that this, generally speaking, is going to cover the broad gamut of the kinds of worries and anxieties that we face. Um, I'm, I'm speaking from a, a place of experience. I'll tell you a little bit um, further into the lesson, but in my late teens, early 20s, this was a big struggle of mine. And I went on uh, a great years-long investigation on how to combat it, how to overcome it. And so these things that I found uh, in the Scripture hopefully will be as practical to you as they were to me. But let's, let's talk about these. The first one is the anxiety of laziness. This is, another way of putting it is, the anxiety of uh, procrastination. You, you have something to do today, but you say, oh, I don't want to do it today, so I'll, I'll put it for tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes, and now you have tomorrow's duties as well as yesterday's duties. You say, well, there's no way I can do both of those, so... I'm not going to be able to do that, so I, I guess I'll put this off until the next day. And then the next day comes, and you have, and, and it just snowballs, and the problems get overwhelmingly bigger and bigger and bigger until it seems completely impossible to manage. 
I want you to imagine somebody who is, um, they've sowed their seed and they've, the fields have been watered by the rains that God supplies and it's getting toward the end of uh, the season, harvest time is here and there's someone and they're laying in their bed and they're, they're anxious for the future. They're thinking about the impending winter. And as, as, as you're laying in bed, as this person's laying in bed, there, there are visions of cold and starvation. There are visions of hungry children, a hungry wife laying there, and this anxiety is just building up as there's this fear for the future. What if my family isn't fed? What if my family doesn't? And, and all the while that this anxiety is looming, outside the window of the person laying in bed is a field that's not yet been harvested. How, how does the anxiety of procrastination and the anxiety of laziness be solved? It's as simple as go out and do whatever it is. Go out and do whatever it is. And, and so it, if there's a pile of bills sitting on your table at home and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and you don't want to open up that mail and you don't want to look at it and it's giving this anxiety that becomes soon enough an overwhelming thing, go to the pile of bills and open one bill at a time. Open up that mail and sift through it. As the yard work is getting bigger and bigger, don't wait. Go out and mow the lawn. Taxes are due April 15th. It's, I, does it, it seems as an adult that it's always tax season. Is that just me? Every time I turn around, oh, seriously, it's, it's tax time again. And uh, just last week, I was starting to feel that dread of it. I, I, I do not like gathering up all of the things from the previous year, all the receipts, all the stuff. But you know what? As I started to feel it, I just said, okay, I'm doing, I'm doing it tonight. I'm just going to sit down and just do it. So the problem is coming, and you start to sense the anxiety. The way to, to combat it, look, it's extremely simple. It doesn't mean that it's easy. It, it's extremely simple in that the majority of the anxiety that the world faces could be solved by simply being responsible, by simply keeping up with the things. And if you're at a point now where all of these anxieties have billowed up and it's this huge unmanageable ball the way that you deal with it is just one little bit at, at a time first of all give yourself clarity in mind by taking this mass where in in your mind all you feel is a fog of dread and it's the sense in your stomach of i just don't know about you know how can i do all this i've got so much to do what you do is you you itemize it Go, go sit down and figure out what's every single thing that needs to be done i'm going to list this out and then what you do is you just attack one of them at a time. I'm going to just do one, or I'm going to do two of these things. I'm going to manage what I can manage today. And then when tomorrow, and I'm going to go to God, I'm going to say, God, I let this problem get really big and out of hand. Please help me with it. I'm going to do today what I should have done the past month. And then tomorrow I'm going to do it again. And slowly it, it drives away that kind of anxiety. Listen to this word. Uh, this, is, this is amazing. God has, has built this into creation. He, t he tells his people, look, this is the way I've made the world. He says, go to the ant. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Consider her ways. That means stop and look at the ant and pay attention to what she's doing. The other day we were watching a, a program that was all about ants and what they're doing in their colonies in the jungle and everything. 
He says, without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. This is what an ant does. He says, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? And the amazing thing about the ant is they're, they're constantly moving, but it's one manageable piece at a time. They grab one thing, they go and they do it. And then they go back and they do something else. You, we can't do everything at once, but you will remove a great deal of anxiety by simply going and doing the work. This is the simplest way to, to overcome anxiety. Go do the work. Whatever you're worried about, don't procrastinate. Second is social anxiety, which is perhaps more complex. There's a lot more thought that goes into this. You walk into a room, and immediately, you, you walk into a room, and because you're hyper-focused on your own self, you walk into the room, and you immediately start thinking, did I wear the right thing? Is, there, is my hair out of place? Is there anything in my, in my teeth? Do I, do I have, you know, is there something in my nose? Nobody's going to tell you if, if there is, by the way. Is there, is, is there anything out of place? And you, and you look over, you walk into the room, you're, you start to feel like the spotlight is on you. Here I am, and everybody in the room is looking at me. Now, right now, that's actually true for me. But, but it's not true any other time. But you walk into a room and you start to feel that. And then you start thinking, oh, there's this table over there and these people over there are laughing about something. They're talking amongst themselves and they're laughing. Are they talking about me? Are they laughing about me? Was it something, was it the thing that I said yesterday? Was it that, that mistake that I made last week at work? Was it that I didn't do well on my exam and they're all aware of this? Was it that I didn't catch the ball in the, the game? Was, what, are they all talking about me? And then you start to see that and these people over here, they're not laughing, but they're talking amongst themselves and you think, are they talking about me? Are they whispering about me? What are they saying about me? And soon enough, you begin to, to, to swell up with this degree of anxiety that it compels you to leave the room and as that goes on, as, as this kind of a, a cycle of thinking continues in, for, for long periods of time, you then train yourself to not want to be around people. I don't want to be around people. They're, they're always looking at me. They're always talking about me. I, I can't manage that. I'm, and look, you weren't meant to manage being the center of the universe. There's only one that's the center of the universe. It isn't you. And it's not me. But this is the way we think, and then it, it drives people to say, I, I, can't, I don't want to be around people anymore, so I'm going to become reclusive. And you can imagine how difficult it would then be to go out and live the life that Jesus called us to live, namely, be salt, be light of the world. Nobody takes that light and hides it under a basket. Salt that's lost its taste, it's no good for anything except to be trampled by the feet of men. And that's ultimately what happens by us when we become so hyper-focused on self, we draw away, our salt is then beneath the feet of men. They don't notice it, they're not aware of it, and it doesn't do what it was designed and functioned to do. So what do you do about this? How do you combat this kind of anxiety? The extreme end of it, I was talking with an anxiety therapist the other day, the extreme end of this of social anxiety is paranoia. And uh, we, we could 
talk about examples of what that would be. But what do you do? And there is an answer, and it's profoundly simple. Profoundly simple. And I, look, a good theology is not one where people leave scratching their heads. What do you do is, is simply this. Stop thinking about yourself. Get out of your own mind. When you walk into a room, you're not the center of the room. You're not the center of the world. One of the greatest helps for me in overcoming any kind of anxiety is knowing I am one very, very small cog in a very big machine. I'm one very small part of this massive, enormous machine. I'm not the center of the world. I'm not the center of a room. I'm not the, the center of my family. I'm not the center of anything. I'm just one small part in it. In fact, when I walk into a room, every other individual is in that room, and all of them secretly are worried about their own lives. Every individual in any room at any given time, even the ones that appear to be totally confident, they are dealing with things in their personal lives that you may never imagine. They're dealing with a struggle. They're dealing with a loss. They're dealing with depression. They're dealing with a worry for the future. Every single individual is, is actually concerned in themselves primarily with themselves. So you walk into a room, it's not, it, the attention really isn't on you. And so what you can do is you can train your mind when you go into a room to just put the attention on other people. To make it your mission to say, look, all these people probably have issues. I want to go see if I can make them laugh. I want to see if I can give them a good word. I want to see if I can be a good friend. There's a person sitting over there at a table by them. I just think back to high school. There's a person over there sitting at a table by themselves. How do they feel? They're literally sitting at the table by themselves. I'm going to go over and sit down with them and have a conversation. What's your name? Where are you from? What do you like to do? It isn't, it isn't about you. It's not about me. We're not the center. Social anxiety vanishes when we get out of our own mind and we put the attention elsewhere. Now, this is where that's, this is coming from. Paul says this, do nothing, nothing, do no thing from selfish ambition. It's not a, it's not a selfish pursuit. None of life is. Or conceit. That, that's thinking I'm the center. See, I'm this big, I'm this really big object, and everything is, is focused on me. Do no thing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, which is bringing yourself down. Look at what he says here. This is so contrary to the world we live in. And, and all the world is anxious and depressed, and all the world is saying you need to focus more and more and more and more on you. You want to solve that anxiety and the depression? Focus more on you. Do more self-care. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, that lie is, is exacerbating the issue. Here's what he says. In humility, count others. This means to consider others as, what does he say? more significant, that's profound, more significant than yourselves. Consider others as more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You walk into a room, what, what interests do these people have? How can I tap into that? And then he says, have this, notice this, this is the way that a Christian thinks. Have this mind 
among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who taught us to think this way? The happiest man who ever walked the planet. The happiest, most joy-filled man who ever walked the planet considered others more significant than himself. And think about what it took for him to do that. He was in the form of God, the very glory of God, in the highest heavens. And he came down to the very lowest place, was born in the lowest kind of place, was born to an impoverished family, and he lived in the lowest kind of class, that of a servant. And then he gave his life up, he gave it up for others, and it was the lowest kind of death, the death of a criminal. He'd done nothing wrong, but he considered others more significant than himself. And he emptied himself. There is profound peace in this. Social, social anxiety is, is from too much introspection. It's too much of it. Get out of your mind. The, the thing that strikes me is the gospel is, it's the gospel of peace. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, do you know what he said? He said, you want to follow me? What do you need to do? If you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, what did he say? Deny yourself. Deny yourself. That's, that stands in complete distinction to the message you're hearing every single day in school, from the psychologists, from the world. Deny self. Pick up your cross and follow after me. And you think, well, then this must be, is it a life of just constant death? No, but in death to self, Jesus said, the one who loses his life for my sake, what will happen? He will find it. True life is found in self-denial, giving up oneself for others. And this is the pathway to overcoming social anxiety. Now, lastly, <coughs> anxiety of the unknown. I was told in the first hour that I had a typo, and it said the anxiety of the uncone. I didn't have the second in there, and so I, I came up with a new anxiety, which is the anxiety of typos. And now it's, it's, that's going to be mine. I'm going to have to deal with that every week now going forward. Um, I'm going to start sending it over to Luke, and Luke's going to keep me in line before I bring it. But uh, the anxiety of the unknown, this categorizes most, most kinds of anxiety. It's a, it's a sense of dread. It's a sense of angst. Sometimes it has an object. Sometimes, there, some, sometimes it's completely subjective. It isn't, it isn't objective at all. You, you could even be speaking to someone and saying, I don't know exactly what it is. I don't know if I could put a name on it. I don't know the kind of fear this is. I'm just, everything, I feel dreadful. The future is gloomy to me. I, I feel on edge. Something's coming around the corner, and I don't know what it is, and I don't think that I like what it will be, and I'm very concerned about it. This is the anxiety of the unknown. It could be the weather. It could be a terrorist plot. It could be a freak accident. It could be persecution. It could be something of culture. It could be my neighbor's opinion of me. It could be a specific phobia, a pathology report. It could just be tomorrow. How do I eliminate that anxiety? And this was my struggle. This particular thing was my struggle for late, late teens, early 20s. Just this few-year window there, whereas I left home and had no idea what I wanted to 
do with my life, and it became very taxing. In fact, I would say that it became debilitating. I won't, I won't go into the details of the nature of this, but it was, it was um, severe, um, this dread for the future, this anxiety for the future. And I had an internship in western Oklahoma, um, and my internship was not, I was not there doing a church internship. I was working for this uh, doctor who had me write a help program for his uh, uh, medical efficiency system that he developed. And anyways, I, I, I latched onto this guy in the church there. This uh, very, every time I talked to him, I just felt, this guy has wisdom. I just, I want his wisdom. I just pick his brain on everything. And so I confided in him, and I just relayed to him that I was feeling anxious about these certain things. And it was working with this all summer, and toward the end of the summer, he said, um, he said, Daniel, do you know how they trap a monkey? in uh, some of these tribal regions of the world. And, uh, of course, I said, no. Never looked into it. <laughs> but he said what they'll do is they'll take a, a gourd, they'll grow this gourd, and then they'll fire-bake it. It'll, it will become hard enough you could use it as a bowl. They'll fire-bake it, and then they'll drill a small hole in the gourd, and then they'll uh, tie it to a tree. And then what they'll do is they'll put a small piece of fruit inside the gourd. And it's just big enough, the hole is just big enough for a monkey to slide his hand into it. But the moment that he grabs a hold of that piece of fruit that he wants, he can't, his, his fist doesn't allow him to, to pull it back out. Okay? And that monkey will scream and it'll kick and it'll jump and it will be uh, just desperately, I mean, it'll almost tear off its arm trying to get free. But it's trying to be free while holding on to the one thing that would never allow freedom. And after telling me this illustration, he said, Daniel, relinquish and enjoy your life. Relinquish and enjoy. Let, let go. And as time has gone on, the thing that's helped me Number one is to know all the things I thought I was controlling by holding on to them, I had no control over them to begin with. But in fact, while I was trying to control things that were out of my control, it was ruining the things in the present that were within my control. Namely, that pile of papers and the field that was left to be harvested. Because I was devoting so much energy to a thing that was not real, to a thing of the future that wasn't real, and in fact, it never came to pass. It made me to miss out on so many moments in the present. So he said, relinquish and enjoy. But I'll tell you that my struggle with it was, because it was profound wisdom to me, and I knew there's something here, there's something here that I need to hold on to and, I, and I, that I, I need to keep with me for the rest of my life. But my struggle as I was going forward, because anxiety is a very deceptive thing, Anxiety, the moment you try to let go of it, will guilt you into thinking that if you stop thinking about it, if you stop, if you stop obsessing over it, if you stop mulling over it, that's tantamount to you being apathetic toward whatever this problem is. That's tantamount to you being careless and, and reckless, and you don't care about whatever this problem is anymore. It, that means you, you lack in sincerity. You might lack in empathy. Whatever this problem, you should be thinking of it. That's an enemy of Satan. That's an, Satan is the enemy, and that is 
the tool that he will use. And so this is what helped me to overcome that specific aspect of it. Look at what he says here. He says, don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the result is that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What's the key? When he said, Daniel, relinquish and enjoy, my concern was, and the thing that I went over in my mind was, if I do let go of this, the problem still might exist, and who will handle it wherever it is? Paul says, you're not just letting it vanish into the atmosphere. What are you doing with it? You're bringing it to the living God. You're bringing it to the almighty God. You're bringing it to literally the greatest problem solver who has ever and ever will live. You're bringing it to the one who could solve the two greatest ills that have ever plagued mankind, namely sin and death. There's no problem I could ever there's no problem I could ever imagine that would be as big as the universal phenomenon of sin and death and Jesus solved that. I'm not just letting these things go into the atmosphere. I'm bringing them to someone who can solve them. Take those problems and bring them to the one that can solve them. Now, let me give you three very quick uh, things you have to keep in mind for this to be for it to do what it's supposed to do. The first one is, you need to believe the final phrase of verse 5. And you need to imagine it. What is the final thing that he says there in verse 5? And oftentimes, this is disconnected. We have all these sermons about, you know, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. Ver the thing that comes immediately before it is the foundation of me not being anxious. What does he say at the end of verse 5? The Lord is at hand. And the word that he uses, it means he's near. All of my conceptions to this point are of a distant God, of perhaps a stoic God, of perhaps isolation. Walk into a room, it's just me. I'm dealing with this problem, it's just me. I have this huge mound of things I need to combat, it's just me. And what does he say? The Lord is near. The Lord is not far. The Lord is near to you, and you need to conceive of it. At the very end of Matthew, when Jesus was getting ready to leave the world, he gave the instructions to the disciples, and then he said what? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always. You need to visualize and conceptualize the Lord Jesus next to you because he truly is. The other thing is you need to be painstakingly explicit in the details that you bring to the living God. He, he describes this in a few ways. Prayer, supplication, and requests. Prayer is just general conversation with God about whatever. Supplication is an urgent kind of request. There's a big problem that I'm facing. Bring it to God. And requests, and the key there is that this is plural, tells me he's saying bring it all. Bring every single detail. 
If, you're feel, if there's a, a specific anxiety or a specific feeling or a specific fear or a specific problem, bring it precisely to God. Don't say, God, help me generically in my life. Bring it to God and say, God, this is exactly the thing that I'm dealing with, and you need to verbalize it. The Bible says to do that. Bring it to God and say, this is precisely what I'm worried about. I'm fearful about this thing exactly. These are the details. I need you. I know you're near. I'm giving this to you. Please take this and solve it. Now, the last thing is, when you take what was in your mind and you hand it over to Jesus, what did we say happens when you take something in here and you put it out? What then is the state of the mind? There's a void there. So what must you do? After you've brought this before the living God, a lot of times we, we bring our things before the living God and they're like clay pigeons. We fire our prayers up into heaven and then we shoot them down before we even get any kind of response. Truly let go of them. Give, give them to God. Give them to Jesus. He's right next to you. Hand them over to him. Now there's this void. What do I do with that void? I don't fill it again with the fear that I had before. But I take that emptiness and I take that void and I do what he says here. He says rejoice. Oops. I don't know how I jumped all the way to the end there. Rejoice in the Lord always and then he says again I will say rejoice have joy and it's in the Lord so you're thinking about something notice notice what he says here in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving you're thinking about blessings and then notice what he says down in verse 8 finally brothers whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, what does he say to do with your mind? Think about these things. Put them into your mind. And coming from a place of experience, one thing I will say is this. We need to just obey this command. The command that says, think about what's good. Your, your mind can't focus on two things at once. It will either focus on the bad or on the good. But when I was given this command and all my heart wanted to do was fear for the future, I thought myself inauthentic for thinking about what was good when I didn't really feel that. Shouldn't I be thinking of the thing that I actually want to be thinking about? It's inauthentic. And I certainly don't feel like thinking about what's good because I've so trained my mind to think on the things that are bad. No. Just obey it. Say, mind, you're going to think on what's good. I'm going to think on the sunshine. I'm going to think on the promises of Jesus. I'm going to think on him on the cross for my sins. I'm going to think about what eternity will be like, what paradise will be like, what a world without death will be like. I'm going to think about the good that I see in people. I'm going to think about the good in my wife. I'm going to think about the blessings of my children. I'm going to think about the things the Lord has given me that if I didn't have them, I would certainly be grieved by it. I'm going to think about my mind and the blessing that it is and the body that God has given me and the blessing that it is. I'm going to think about food, foods that I like, anything that's good. I'm going to look on beautiful landscapes like mountains and beaches, and I'm going to put my mind there and focus on it even if I don't feel like it. And after a time, by just continual obedience to this, giving to God the problems, thinking on what's good, we create new pathways in our minds and we become a new creation. Brothers and sisters, there's a way to live without anxiety. The Lord God is near. So let us give him our problems. And by way of 
the very last statement before we close out. This is not from scripture, this is from natural revelation. And these things will help you. Research is finding more and more these things will help you. With anxiety and depression and many other kinds of mental illnesses, eat less sugar, move your bodies more, exercise, and get out into the sunlight. Often, oftentimes, we, we become so theologically minimalistic that we say, if there's not a book, chapter, verse, it doesn't have any value. Look, the Bible was never meant to override and undo natural revelation. It works in tandem with it. The Bible does not undo common sense. And if all of the research is pointing to the fact that if we're eating better and moving our bodies and getting sunlight, it makes us more mentally healthy, we should do it. And so these are some things that have been practical and helpful in my life. I hope they will be in yours. We serve a great God. We serve a Jesus who forgives us for everything that we've ever done wrong. And he is standing at your door. If you need to come to him, if you need to give him your life, there's an opportunity now. But if you need the prayers of the church, if you need resources from this church, from the leaders, from those with wisdom, you can let that be known while we stand and while we sing this song.